Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, lawless presidents. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Had that feeling for I'm a while. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego. 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest in China Lake, California. Up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, Queso in Cottage Grove. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, for joining me and the delightful Desi Doyen, who is here (laughs) as ever. How are you, Desiree? I, I am here. There's that. That good, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. One of those days already, isn't Indeed. it? All right. Well, let's start here. Uh, in a tweet on Monday morning, the president of the United States claimed that the mere appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller was itself totally unconstitutional. Wow. That claim, you will be shocked to learn, is totally untrue. Not even close to true, uh, and as it turns out, runs completely counter to a federal judge's ruling in Washington, D.C. just a week or two ago, which upheld Mueller's appointment and his authority to prosecute Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. In a tweet by Donald Trump on Monday morning, which misspelled the word word counsel. I don't think he's ever learned how to spell that. I know. Although you would think, well, yeah, anyway. Yeah, you think, but yeah, whatever. So, he, yeah, he <laughs> deleted it. And he retweet, he tweeted it again with the proper spelling uh, and charged the appointment of the special counsel is totally unconstitutional. But it isn't. It's part of uh, this entire effort now is part of an accelerated effort over the past few days by Trump and his new lead attorney slash public relations guy, Rudy Giuliani, to smother the American people with propaganda regarding Mueller's probe into alleged interference by Russia in the 2016 election, Team Trump's potential collusion, coordination, 
conspiracy with them. And uh, most of note on uh, today's show, in any event, Trump's Trump's subsequent efforts to obstruct that investigation in all manner of ways, arguably even by putting out this kind of false information about the probe itself. Earlier on Monday morning, Trump had claimed he had the ability to pardon himself. A legal question that is, in fact, um, well, at least a little bit more open to debate than the idea that the appointment of uh, Robert Mueller was unconstitutional. In that tweet, uh, Trump asserted today, Quote, as has been stated by numerous legal scholars, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. Well, in fact, many legal scholars have uh, said just the opposite. We will be joined shortly by legal scholar and historian Jed Sugarman of Fordham University to see if we can at least try to bring some historical and legal clarity to a number of these matters, at least some context um, to some of these matters that uh, Trump has been going to team Trump, the entire bevy of them that they've been going out of their way now to try to cloud up any way they can in recent weeks. So, yeah, uh, they've really picked up the pace of trying to throw dust and and rocks and ge- into the gears. Exactly the same thing you've been looking at for so many years when it comes to climate change. Oh, Just exactly. confuse people. Yes, as much as possible. We will try to unconfuse them. Yeah, you uh, just the, 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 it's It's the sowing of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and you can convince a good portion of the public with enough disinformation yeah. repeated often enough that they will believe any And that appears to be working. Uh, Pollster Bruce Melman noted over the weekend on Twitter that President Trump has the second highest own party job approval rating since World War II at day 500, only behind uh, Bush, George W. Bush, uh, just following 9-11, which is kind of incredible. So this is the the approval by uh, a president's own party. George W. Bush had a 96 percent approval rating at this period in his presidency, but it was uh, following 9-11. But after that, going back to all the presidents, back to World War II, only Donald Trump uh, has the highest uh, approval rating by his own party, by the Republicans. 87 percent approval, according to Gallup's number here on day 500. Uh, kind of incredible, actually. I mean, with all of the legal jeopardy and the controversy that Donald Trump is in, the turmoil he's brought to everything from immigration and detention and to, to gutting one treaty that the U.S. has entered into after another to potential trade wars now, not potential, actual trade wars now with even our own allies. As of this weekend, about 500 days into his presidency, only George W. Bush was more popular among his own party than Donald Trump. I mean, Ronald Reagan only had a 77 percent approval uh, at this point. So we are far, far off the rails here now, I'm sorry to say, in this country. And I, I can only hope the upcoming midterms uh, somehow serve as some sort of course correction. We'll see, because it's clear that Republicans in Congress, they have no interest in correcting the course here. They have no concern about criminal activity by this president. By way of example, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who is 
currently the front believed to be the front runner to become the next speaker of the house if uh, republicans maintain their majority control of that chamber uh, after the 2018 elections McCarthy picked up from the Paul Ryan playbook to completely dodge questions on Sunday on the rather startling admission of President Donald Trump's legal team that the White House, yes, lied to the American people about that infamous June 2016 meeting in Trump Tower between Donald Trump's son, his son-in-law, his campaign manager and others with uh, Russian agents after they were promised dirt on Hillary Clinton in an interview on Sunday uh, on uh, CNN, McCarthy told uh, Dana Bash after she had asked about this 20 page letter from Trump's lawyers over the weekend sent to uh, special counsel Robert Mueller last January. It, the letter was obtained and uh, published over the weekend by The New York Times uh, in that letter. Among other things, Trump's attorneys admit that Trump himself dictated, quote, dictated. This is from Trump's attorneys. Trump dictated uh, his son Don Jr.'s statement last July to The New York Times when the campaign-era Trump Tower meeting first came to light, despite previously claiming that uh, Trump Sr. had nothing to do with Don Jr.'s false statements about that actual meeting, claiming that it was about the ad adoption of Russian children. Last year, uh, Trump uh, lawyer Jay Sekulow repeatedly denied that the president had any role in crafting that statement. Uh, his attorneys in this letter over the weekend admit he actually, yes, dictated it. Their words. That's also in a direct contradiction with what White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders had said last August, in which she literally said Trump, quote, certainly didn't dictate that statement. So anyway, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, potentially the next speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, was pressed by CNN's Dana Bash about that admission over the weekend. And he refused really to even speak about it, no matter how hard she tried. His legal team admits that the president himself dictated that statement uh, on the Trump Tower meeting. And this is what the letter says. It says, quote, the president dictated a short but accurate response to the New York Times article on, on behalf of his son, Donald Trump Jr. That's a direct contradiction to what the White House said last year. Take a listen. That was written by Donald Trump Jr. and, and I'm sure within consultation with his lawyer. So that wasn't written by the president. The president didn't sign off on, on anything, but the president was not involved in the drafting of the statement and did not issue the statement. It came from uh, Donald Trump Jr. He certainly didn't dictate, but you know, he, like I said, he weighed in, offered suggestion like any father would do. Mr. Leader, are you bothered by the fact that the White House lied about the president's involvement here? Uh, Dana, first of all, th uh, Dana, th first of all, thank you for having me. Um, look, the one thing I have found, this has gone on for more than a year. Millions of dollars have been spent. The White House has been cooperating all the way through. This was all based upon was there collusion involved in the election. Everyone has looked at this as there's no collusion going Mr. forward. Mr. Leader, I understand um, that those, are the, those are the talking points, but this is a specific question. Are you concerned that the White House, you, you heard the sound bites, you saw the statement from his own lawyers, they lied. Yet, does that concern you? 
They could go on with the investigation. What I was concerned most about, like most Americans, was there any collusion? There was no collusion. This has gone on for more than a year. It's been investigated in so many different manners. What I'm really concerned about is look at what our economic numbers are. Look at North Korea's meeting going through. Look at the trade discussions we're having. And these, this is the number one question we're following through. Let them f walk through their investigation. But I think if there's no collusion, it's time to wind this down. Okay. You don't want to answer the question about the lies. We're going to talk about the economy in a second okay <laughs> yeah he really really was uh was was pandering quite a bit to try not to answer that you question think? yeah he was working hard uh he was also throwing out some lies himself guys should say good for dana bash there for uh you know using the l word for saying that yes uh, as you heard jay seculo that was another one of trump's lawyers uh, and the white house uh, press secretary sarah San sarah huckabee sanders that they lied they just lied about this as Trump's own attorneys now admit. But Kevin McCarthy, House Majority Leader for the Republicans, likely to be the next U.S. House Speaker if Republicans stay in control. He could not, uh, not only could he not admit that they lied, even though they admitted himself, uh, he just didn't even want to talk about it. He also claimed no collusion, as they do. And in fact, there is uh, no it's, it's not been found that there is no collusion, no matter how many times they repeat that. Um, and his complaint about uh, this has been going on for more than a year. So it's time to wrap that up. Uh, maybe I missed him and the other Republicans talking about wrapping up that Bill Clinton special counsel investigation that went on for five years they're concerned this has been going on for one year. Clinton went on for five years. Well, yeah, so, literally, they will say anything yeah. at this point. They are, I mean, it, it does make you wonder, God, what are they hiding that they're fighting this so hard? We know what they're hiding. What they're hiding is in plain sight. They have a lawless president who doesn't give a damn about the law, the Constitution, or anything else. May have broken the law in the, in the lead up to the election. Who knows? We we don't know about the details of so-called collusion with Russia, but his obstruction of justice could not be more clear. And yet these are the same Republicans who were so concerned about about presidents following the rule of law during the Obama administration and, of course, during the Clinton administration. Now they couldn't care less. They couldn't care less about any of it. They want to talk about anything else. So, again, uh, as we always say, our way out of this mess is voting. To that end, primaries are being held on Tuesday in eight states, including Alabama, where our good friend, the secretary of state there of Alabama, is now up for uh, he's got his own primary. He'll be facing reelection this uh, this November if he gets through Tuesday's primary. I was happy to see his uh, likely Democratic opponent. Heather Milam or Milam, I'm not sure how to Milam, Milam, I don't Milam. Know. okay. Heather, I was happy to see Heather <laughs> uh, jump into uh, what we had reported last week and the insane string of emails that the Republican Secretary of State out there in Alabama, John Merrill, had sent me. She jumped in. She was absolutely appalled and outraged by it. And a lot of uh, voters in Alabama seem to now be taking notice of that. You can, if you missed any of those shows, you can download. That entire email thread at bradblog.com. But in any event, uh, Tuesday elections in Alabama, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and yes, right here in California. 
if you live in any of those states and um, you haven't voted yet, please do. Elections uh, right now are appear to be our only way out of this mess. Well, that's only if voters actually show up, speak clearly with their uh, votes, have their votes counted as cast. Those also remain big ifs in my book, as you know, if you've ever uh, listened to the broadcast for more than five or ten minutes. Uh, one reminder, uh, one more reminder here before we get to the break of the importance of voting comes from the Republicans stolen U.S. Supreme Court today which uh, over the next month will be releasing a lot of opinions on a number of very big issues that the court has heard over the past session, which are likely to affect all of us for a very, very long time, potentially for generations. Um, The Supreme Court is setting aside a Colorado court ruling against a baker who would not make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. The court is not, however, deciding the big issue in the case, whether a business can legally, constitutionally refuse to serve gay and lesbian people. So I guess that part of it is the good news, I suppose, for now. The justices limited uh, their limited ruling on Monday turns on what the court described as anti-religious bias on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission when it had ruled against baker Jack Phillips, who had refused to bake a cake for that same-sex wedding. The justices voted 7-2 to that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had violated Phillips's rights under the First Amendment when he was fined for his refusal to bake that cake. Justice Anthony Kennedy says in his majority opinion that the issue, quote, must await further elaboration. So they appear to be kicking the can down the road a little bit here. Appeals in uh, similar cases are are pending, including one at the Supreme Court from a florist who didn't want to provide flowers for a same-sex wedding. I hope to be joined by Mark Joseph Stern uh, on tomorrow's broadcast. Will we have? Do we have Mark? Yes, at this point we are scheduled to talk to Mark. Unless we'll see what changes between now and then. In any event, uh, he will uh, be here hopefully on tomorrow's broadcast to discuss That opinion from the uh, stolen U.S. Supreme Court and more this week. But for now, back to the White House and the president's increasingly broad new claims that he cannot be indicted. He cannot even be subpoenaed. He can pardon himself for any and all crimes in the bargain. And I guess that means he's completely above the rule of law at this point. Is he right about that? Is he right about any of it? Fordham University's legal historian Jed Sugarman joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Back in July of last year, 2017, when the question first began to come to light, Lawrence Tribe, constitutional law professor at Harvard Law School, Richard Painter, chief White House ethics lawyer under George W. Bush, and Norm Eisen, former White House ethics lawyer for President Barack Obama, all concurred in a joint Washington Post op-ed that the President of the United States absolutely could not issue himself a pardon. Can a president be, uh, pardon himself, they asked? Well, four days before Richard Nixon resigned, his own Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel opined no, he or she cannot, citing the, fun, quote, fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case. We agree, they wrote. The Justice Department was right that guidance could be found in the enduring principles that no one can be both the judge and the defendant in the same matter and that no one is above the law. The Constitution, they said, specifically bars the president from using the pardon power to prevent his own impeachment and removal. It adds that any official removed through impeachment remains fully subject to criminal prosecution. That provision would make no sense, they argue, if the president could pardon himself. This White House and this president, however, clearly feel differently about that matter, as we've learned in uh, very clear terms over the past several days. President Donald Trump asserted his presidential power and escalated his efforts to discredit the special counsel Russia probe on Monday morning, declaring that he has the, quote, absolute right to pardon himself and attacking the investigation as, quote, totally unconstitutional. Trump's comments on Twitter came a day after Rudy Giuliani, his attorney, played down the possibility that the president could pardon himself, suggesting he might have the authority but would be unwise to use it. Giuliani, uh, speaking on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday, said pardoning himself would be unthinkable and probably lead to immediate impeachment, and he has no need to do it. He's done nothing wrong. On Twitter on Monday, Trump said, quote, as has been stated by numerous legal scholars, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. But why would I do it when I have done nothing wrong? Trump later added that the appointment of the special counsel is totally unconstitutional in all caps. So, you know, he meant it. Despite that, he said, we play the game because I, unlike the Democrats, have done nothing wrong. Trump's legal team is making clear that it will combat any effort to even force the president to testify in front of grand jury. Giuliani on Sunday underscored one of the main arguments in a newly unveiled letter that was sent by Trump's lawyer to Mueller back in January and revealed by The New York Times late last week. Giuliani said a president can't be given a grand jury subpoena, can't even get a subpoena. As part of the investigation into the foreign meddling in the 2016 election, the former New York City mayor, who was not on the legal team when that letter was written, added that Trump, quote, probably does have the power to pardon himself, which is an assertion that has been challenged by legal scholars. Giuliani told ABC's This Week on Sunday that, quote, pardoning other people is one thing. Pardoning yourself is tough. Seemingly concurring with those three legal and ethical and constitutional experts I cited who had opined about the matter in The Washington Post last July, 
In addition to the legal battles, Trump's team and allies have waged a public relations campaign against Mueller and the Justice Department itself in order to discredit the investigation. Giuliani said last week that the special counsel probe itself may be an entirely illegitimate investigation and needs to be curtailed because, in his estimation, it was based on inappropriately obtained information from an informant and from Jim Comey's memos, though there is little, if any, evidence to support his assertions that any of that was unlawful in any way. Nonetheless, Trump tweeted later on Monday morning that the appointment of the special counsel itself is totally unconstitutional. Really? The probe itself is unconstitutional? A court battle, one that would end up in the Republicans' stolen majority U.S. Supreme Court, most likely now seems more certain than ever. If Trump's team argues that the president can't be forced to answer any questions at all or even be charged with obstruction of justice, President Bill Clinton was charged with obstruction in 1998, but, but that was by the House of Representatives as part of his impeachment trial. And one of the articles of impeachment prepared against President Richard Nixon back in 1974 was also for obstruction, but impeachment of course, is a very different animal than criminal charges for which the president of the United States and his legal team now appear to be arguing that he is completely immune, period, end of story, full stop. Somehow it doesn't feel quite like the end of the story, and historically and legally, many of the assertions being made very loudly over the past few days seem, let's call them dubious at best. Joining us now is Jed Sugarman. He is a Fordham Law School professor, legal historian, regular contributor at Slate.com and on his own blog, SugarBlog.com. And he's author of The People's Courts, Pursuing Judicial Independence in America. He's also the co-author of an amicus brief, along with a number of other historians, in the constitutional emoluments litigation filed by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW, against Donald Trump, the president of the United States. Jed Sugarman, welcome back to the broadcast, Professor. You were you were on a month or so ago with our guest host, Angie Coiro, and you were so great, I uh, made a note at the time to find an excuse to have you back when I was actually here. Uh, no pressure, though, uh, Jed. Yeah, well, happy to be back. It's always an adventure uh, these days. Every, every day brings a new set of constitutional historical questions. Every day, every hour, I'm afraid. All right, let's... Uh, Lots of, uh, let's call it generously, uh, information that has been put out by the Trump administration over the past uh, several days. That 20-page letter written by Trump's attorney and uh, sent to the special counsel. Giuliani's appearances over the weekend making multiple claims, uh, some of which were in contradiction to that letter, by the way, it seems to me. Uh, and then yeah. of, uh, on, uh, on Monday morning, of course, a uh, number of these tweets himself from the president. Uh, obviously, all of this is meant to make the case for uh, the president, the PR case for the president. But it would be nice to sort out what is merely propaganda uh, for the president versus wishful legal thinking on his part versus actually established law where it exists. So before I get to some of the specific questions here. Um, on pardons and immunity from prosecution. As an historian here, from a historian's perspective, 
How much of this is now unprecedented? In other words, are these normal matters that come up every time a president, whether it's Nixon or Clinton or the Bushes, uh, are these normal questions that come up? Because it feels very different right now while we're in the middle of it. It really is unprecedented. Let me give you a specific example of, of why this is unprecedented, even when you compare this to the Nixon impeachment and to the Clinton uh, impeachment struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, you know, there was a case, United States versus Nixon, that said the Supreme Court can, it said that a prosecutor can subpoena uh, from the president. It's just in that case, that was the White House Oval Office case, not an interview, right? That was just, that was um, actual physical material. Uh, and so the subpoena question now for uh, for President Trump is a, a fight over whether you can have a president sit down as a living human being and, and answer questions. Now, then you had the Clinton case, Clinton versus Jones, mm-hmm. and you had then uh, the Supreme Court said, well, a civil case can go forward, and then the president, uh, Clinton, was deposed. Well, there's a very big difference between a civil proceeding when a president can sit down for a deposition but then doesn't have to appear again, doesn't have to be in court, mm-hmm. versus the massive criminal investigation with so many different tentacles um, happening now. So on the one hand, it's true. When President Trump's lawyers say this is, could be a, a, a much bigger time commitment, um, it's on the one hand true in favor of President Trump. On the other hand, it's because this criminal conspiracy is so massive and pressing that we need these uh, live interviews to go over with Trump directly what he meant when he said that he fired Comey because of the Russia probe. Um, what, you know, it, it seems obvious, doesn't it? But, but if you actually have to ask the person the question, what did you mean, and, and it's for a prosecutor to show corrupt intent. If it's already been established that, uh, you know, in the Nixon case, that in fact we were able to subpoena those tapes, is there, what's the difference between, you know, if you can subpoena the, the, the White House for the president for documents, why can't you, how would that be different from subpoenaing, subpoenaing him to sit down and actually answer questions? Yeah. How would that be different legally? It is true that the U.S. versus Nixon is a good precedent for Mueller, but we still have to acknowledge that it is a significant leap to go from getting tapes uh-huh. to then having a president prepare for and sit for uh, a long interview. Um, and, it's, and it's not just that interview process. It's also tied into the, the scope of a criminal trial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the precedent is still enough for Mueller to have a subpoena. I think he still wins. And if I had to guess, I would, all, I would say he probably wins 9 nothing. Um, even with this, you know, pretty conservative court. But nevertheless, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is, it's not a crazy argument mm-hmm. to say that a lot um, that, that uh, it has to be the last resort to sit down with the president. It just so happens that it is now the last resort. We've gotten to the last resort. Yeah. Uh, it's not enough to simply hand over documents to Mueller. We need Trump to answer for what he was doing when he fired Comey or when he told Comey to let Flynn go. Or now, when he apparently obstructed justice with witness tampering by dictating a false statement to Don Jr. about the Trump Tower meeting, uh, that, that's the most uh, that's the most recent breaking news 
and I suggested that that's close to a smoking gun, or, or, or it's a sign of a smoking gun. Yeah, and if we don't get into more details, if we don't have enough time for more details on that, I will point folks towards your uh, article at Slate today, uh, charging that, in fact, uh, that was a smoking gun, this admission of obstruction of justice in this uh, this 20-page letter in which they say outright that, in fact, Donald Trump did dictate that letter concerning that uh, June 2016 uh, meeting in Trump Tower uh, with Russians to get, quote unquote, dirt on Hillary Clinton. But uh, right. on on uh, pre- sticking to precedents here and what what yeah. do and don't exist at the moment. Uh, let's look at this. Um, d- this notion they've been making pretty hard over the weekend and that uh, Trump certainly made today that a president cannot that a president absolutely can, I should say, pardon himself if he wants to. Is there any kind of precedent, any kind of case law uh, on on that question at this point? You're asking the right question. And, and, and you started by saying, you know, can we separate what is propaganda versus what actually has some basis or uh, is, a, is a more plausible legal claim? Mm-hmm. So let me separate. So in the, in the letter this weekend... Um, you know, there was this argument that a president can't obstruct justice by firing someone, uh, by fire, because the president is the chief law enforcement officer. Mm-hmm. Um, that argument is weak, um, uh, and I'll, let me explain why. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're arguing that because Trump is the chief law enforcement officer, he can end an investigation, he can even fire an attorney general or fire a prosecutor. It's true the Constitution does give this, this power implicitly to a president to fire. I mean, let me pause and say, it's actually surprising to people. The Constitution never mentions the power to fire. It's not in the Constitution at all. It's something that was created out of um, implication. But nevertheless, we, we say that the president can fire officers. But just because the Constitution gives someone the power to do something, it doesn't mean they can use it for whatever purpose they want. So if, if President Trump receives a bribe to fire Comey and to nominate a billionaire, mm-hmm. um, it, that would obviously run afoul of, uh, of a bribery statute that applies to everybody equally. You can't, you, even if you have five good reasons for doing something, but one illegal reason, that illegal reason still makes it illegal. So if that applies to bribery, um, and uh, that would also apply to obstruction of justice. No yeah. one can obstruct justice. Let, let me and, let me jump let me, also, let me let me yeah, jump in ahead. there just to make uh, make sure we're clear on this. So it has been established, in fact, that if a president was bribed to fire someone or hire someone, that he or she would not absolutely that that would be illegal. Well, let me give you an example from federal criminal law about a state official, and this name has come up in the news recently. Rod Blagojevich, the yep. governor of, of Illinois. Yeah. So the, the Illinois, the, the Constitution, the Illinois Constitution gives Blagojevich the power to nominate somebody mm-hmm. uh, to the office, and that's what he did. He, or, or that's what he attempted to do. He just attempted to do it through bribery. Right. So he was prosecuted for bribery for selling a federal office, and that took him. In, that put him in. Uh, that put him in, in mm. prison. Um, it's no accident that Trump is talking about pardoning him because this is. What, is, what, what Trump is trying to make the point that mm-hmm. it's unfair that this president, was, that this governor was using his constitutional powers to nominate somebody, even if for a bribe, because that's his politics is normal. It's an incredibly cynical move, but that's the message Trump is sending. So we've never had a president. <laughs> I mean, part of what's so unprecedented here is you ask, if you ask for a case that is exactly on point, we've never had a case like this because we've never had a president like this. So what we're doing is we're looking around at other examples in our system 
and then plus common sense. It's common sense that a governor can't sell a senatorship. It's also common sense that a president can't sell uh, firing or hiring an FBI director. And so, too, it's common sense that a president can't fire an FBI director because he wants to stop that FBI director from investigating. It's common sense... And yet you had uh, Richard Nixon in 1977, and this was three years after he was uh, removed from office, sitting down in this famous interview with uh, with David Frost here, uh, well, making making this assertion that essentially the president can do anything. You know this clip. So what, in a sense, you're saying is that there are certain situations where the president can decide that it's in the best interest of the nation or something and do something illegal well when the president does it that means that it is not illegal by definition exactly so uh, he's famously saying that anything the president does is by definition legal and donald trump seems to be making that same argument uh, that he is immune even from obstruction of justice charges uh, he's just making that up the way uh, Richard Nixon seemed to be kind of making it up at the time? I would say yes. They're making this up. They're making it up from a certain history, but it's not American history. They're making it up from British history. Mm-hmm. The king was the law. And they, uh, and, and Americans, when we set up, when Americans designed their constitution, they were explicitly moving away from a monarchy, and uh, not a government of, of, of men, but a government of laws. And no one's above the law. So, so I mean, we're very fortunate that we've never had a precedent where we have to deal with exactly this. But now we have that this background of a republic. I will say that the Nixon example is, is, is helpful, because even though we don't have a court case about it, um, we do have an impeachment and a resignation. You, you know, the House didn't vote. as a full body, but the House did draw up in committee and articles of impeachment um, which laid out that uh, Nixon was not above the law. So so we have historical examples, um, and I I would say it simply is our constitutional system that a president, like anybody else, is subject to the laws that Congress passes about bribery or obstruction. Um, There is actually, on this question of not being above the law, there is, I think, a, a really tough debate about whether a president can be indicted. And I think reasonable people have looked at, at this question and, and you can come out on either side. I think it is, I think it's reasonable to say that a, pre- a sitting president can't be indicted. He must be impeached and removed or be out of office to stand trial. Some people make a good argument that he can have a sealed indictment or an indictment with no trial and then you wait for the trial. Um, or, you know, as Giuliani suggested, if, if Trump assassinated Comey, yeah. maybe there are some crimes so, you know, and said he couldn't be indicted. I think that's too far. I think as a functional matter, um, a president who's killing people represents a clear and present danger, and that would be the kind of case. So, so that's an in-between case. And, and you're also asking about pardons. Let me get to the question about whether a president can pardon himself. Yeah. Unfortunately, there is, uh, there is no clear legal rule that, uh, legal scholars of, of courts have pointed to that would really limit this. So the op-ed that you read before said um, uh, the argument was that no man can be a judge in his own case. Right. And I think that's a great maxim. Um, it just doesn't really apply to pardons because a, a, a president is not a judge. When a president pardons someone, the president's acting like an executive with executive power, 
he's not acting like a judge in his own case. He's acting like a, uh, an executive in his own case. And so the maxim doesn't apply as literally and, and directly as one might want it to. Um, but now this is where we come in, and I've got to acknowledge that, we're, we're, that this new argument goes up, uh, is an uphill battle, but it's very much grounded in American uh, and English history. Um, so my colleague Ethan Lieb and I sat down and, and looked, looked at the history again of the part of the Constitution that sometimes gets overlooked. The Constitution says the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Uh, and, the, and the only oath that's spelled out in the Constitution is the president's oath, and that oath, uh, the president says um, that he shall faithfully execute the office. Now, that language of faithfulness might sound religious and sort of antiquated, mm -hmm. but it actually that language of faithfulness is directly tied to fiduciary duties. And just to explain to an audience what fiduciary duties are, if you have a trust, mm -hmm. the trustee who runs that trust has to run it for the beneficiaries of the trust, like for a family or, or for, a, you know, for a park. Mm -hmm. And they can't just embezzle money. They can't benefit themselves. Those are, that, the trustee has a fiduciary duty to, to put the beneficiary's interest ahead of his own. Mm -hmm. So, too, does a corporate board have a fiduciary duty to put the interest of the shareholders ahead of their own interest as a board. Right. They can't embezzle money or they can't benefit themselves to the detriment of the beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the original documents that created trust or corporate charters back in, in, in early England, you know, uh, early modern England, they often use this phrase that obligates the trustee to faithfully execute his office. And courts from the 18th century to the present have said that language of faithful execution uh, imposes legally enforceable duties on the president. And so what is that kind of legally enforceable duty? It's a duty against self-dealing. It's a duty against corruption. It's a duty against uh, um, using bad faith, and if you apply that language, that, that legal understanding, I, I should also add that federal courts have also held that other federal officers have fiduciary duties as well, duties to the public instead of benefiting themselves. When you tie in all of those precedents about private trust and the, uh, and, and the federal court precedent, mm -hmm. and then you also observe, as, as we've observed, that the Founding Fathers, when they put that language in the Constitution, it was part of a legal system that treated those words as imposing those duties. We say that to be faithful to that faithful execution language, a president is acting faithlessly by pardoning himself. And, and moreover, it would be also invalid for a president to pardon his co-conspirators to buy their silence. That would also be an invalid and faithless use of executive power. Jed Sugarman, I know you got to get uh, get to a train to catch uh, very shortly, uh, so let me just ask you this last uh, thought here on this. Uh, what you just described, to me, makes perfectly good, as you described it, common sense. Do you have any sort of confidence that, because uh, all any of these questions, I suspect, are going to go all the way to the Supreme Court if they come up, uh, do you have any uh, sense left that this court that I described earlier as a Republican stolen majority, uh, do you have still have confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court that they will um, share your common sense view of some of these <laughs> seemingly common sense issues? Okay, so 
So let me say three quick things about that. <laughs> yes. First, I am much more confident that if the President Trump pardons himself or pardons his co-conspirators, I can tell you that, that presidential pardons don't affect state law, and state prosecutors are there in the background. Um, they've already been talking to Mueller. I, I'm confident that they have the power and the will to bring state charges. Michael Cohen, Manafort, Flynn, and even Trump and Trump Jr., they're all facing a laundry list of state charges. So that's the most important take-home message for your audience. Um, this might not matter, given that state, states are there. Um, um, secondly, I'm confident that if Trump were to use this pardon power, a prosecutor would still be able to bring obstruction of justice charges um, against uh, President Trump if he were pardoned. Him. If he pardons himself, um, I'm not as confident that, that the Senate would actually remove him in an impeachment. I, I, I have very little confidence in this Republican uh, Congress to hold Trump to account. Mm -hmm. But our argument is based on history, and it's, kind of, it's an originalism argument. And I am hopeful that if, if, the, if the conservatives on the Supreme Court are consistent with their originalism and their, and their concern for the history of the founding era, that people like the justices like Gorsuch and Alito, as well as Kennedy and Roberts, might be open to this. I should tell you that when we presented this argument to conservative academics, mm -hmm. we've been very pleasantly surprised about how many conservative academics like this argument because it, it limits executive power in lots of ways. And libertarians like the idea that there are constitutional limits on executive power. So hopefully conservative academics reflect the good faith of justices as well and maybe that would be a limit on faithless execution. So I hope that helps. If they are consistent with their uh, previously stated views on originalism, <laughs> exactly. they have uh, shown, uh, let's say, some inconsistencies there in uh, in recent history, I'm afraid to say. Uh, but I hope I hope you're right. I hope they are consistent. Jed Sugarman, Fordham Law School professor, legal historian. You can find his work at Slate.com, on his own blog, SugarBlog.com, and that's S-H-U-G-E-R blog.com, and on the Twitter's at Jed Shug. That's Jed S H U G. Jed, get to that train. Really appreciate you joining us okay, here today. Thank you very much. Help. Thank, thank you. It right did. Thank you, brother. All right, quick break, and we are back with our closing few minutes on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, we talked last week about this new book out by Ben Rhodes, uh, who was a, 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 a top uh, advisor, national security advisor, I think for all eight years of the Obama presidency. His brother actually, even though right-wingers really hate this guy, Ben Rose, his brother actually 
ran Fox News for years and years. Really? Yeah, that guy, and he's now in charge of uh, CBS News, but yeah, he ran Fox News. For I years did not and years. know that. Yep. Uh, in any event, we, we talked last week about his new book. New York Times had reviewed it and said that, um, well, Obama, President Obama at the time, just before the election, the 2016 presidential election, did not want to apply sanctions against Russia before the election because he was concerned that they might hack into the voting tabulators, into the voting tabulation systems, something which... The, uh, the Obama administration had said, oh, we don't need to worry about election officials still to this day says, oh, don't worry about it. They're not connected to the Internet and they, we, they can't possibly mess with the tallies. All of that is untrue. Of course, they can mess with the tallies. Of course, they can be hacked into. Of course, they are atta uh, attached to the Internet, even though election officials love to say that they are not as if. The computers that are used to program those tabulators are never themselves connected to the Internet. Of course, they are. They can have malware on them when the programming for those tabulators, the ballot programming then gets put on those machines. It can be passed from the programming computers to the tabulators. Yeah, I mean, this is not like the old school where you'd get a CD in the mail with the software on there. No, yes, right. election officials now download the software onto their computers, and then they put that software onto the election right. machines. That is how it is a secondary connection and to the in Internet. In fact, we know, we have seen now the phishing emails. Uh, the Intercept uh, published, I think it was over the weekend or a few days back, um, published some of the phishing emails that were sent out. Suppose Supposedly from Russian sources to election officials in hopes that they would click on it and have their systems uh, affected with uh, infected with malware at the time. Anyway, we talked about it a little bit on uh, one of our shows last week. Jonathan Simon, who's the uh, executive director of the Election Defense Alliance, he's the author of the book Code Red, Computerized Elections and the War on American Democracy. He sends an uh, email to bradcast at bradblog.com after that show to say equal parts fascinating and appalling that Obama acknowledged fearing the possibility of Russian hacking into the vote tabulation system so much that he held off on sanctioning Moscow for its pre-election meddling. Yet there never seems to have been a dram of consideration of the vote counting system's manifest vulnerability to non-Russian meddling. And this is one of the reasons why the whole Russia story absolutely drives me nuts. Um, yes, you should be concerned about Russia hacking into our elections. You should also be concerned about every other country in the world hacking into our elections. And you should be most concerned about Americans hacking into our elections, uh, specifically election officials and uh, contractors who work on these systems, who have direct access to these systems, who don't need to hack them at all, who don't need to, you know, get malware in, uh, you know, through uh, some uh, official that gets passed through the memory stick into the tabulators, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of people who have direct access to these systems. And if we're not allowed to oversee these systems and the, uh, the election results, then they can get away with that. They can do anything they want. And we would never know. And this we know, if only because back in 2016, when Jill Stein, the Green Party presidential candidate, tried to count ballots 
in uh, the three states that uh, put Donald Trump over the top, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. She was blocked in every single state. Anyway, Jonathan Simon says this simply defies logic. Uh, talking about uh, the, the concern about Russian hacking. This simply defies logic. Insiders, domestic political operatives, had far easier and more direct access to Dominion, ESNS, Hart, and their various contractors. Those are the uh, voting. Those are the private voting machine companies who own our elections, or at least who think own our elections, with their uh, voting systems that we use in all 50 states. Uh, they had more uh, inside operatives, had more access to Dominion, ESNS, Hart, and uh, their various contractors than the Russians could dream of. The pattern of anomalies and shifts since the dawn of the computerized vote counting era in 2002 has been one sided, says Jonathan. I'm not entirely sure I agree with him there, but uh, that's what he, he writes. Uh, Trump was the capstone to Rove McConnell's edifice of right wing hegemony. Why was it so Im so imaginable that the Russians would manipulate the vote counts to dictate the winner, but so unimaginable that right-wingers here at home would commit such an act? Is it the drug of never-happen-here American except exceptionalism, he asks? Whatever it is, it's an enormous and catastrophic blind spot. We really need to wake up fast and assume the basic duty of public observable vote counting in support of what's left of our democracy. Jonathan Simon, uh, you can find more about his book at coderead2014.com slash blog. All right, we have time also for uh, another story, another follow-up on a story that we covered last week. Uh, some evidence showing that Republicans are beginning to do, let's say, slightly better in, in uh, generic matchups between Republicans and Democrats for the U.S. House as the Democrats try to gain back a majority in uh, one or both houses of Congress. And uh, the, the evidence that despite those huge tax cuts that Republicans passed last year, thinking that this was going to be their, their key to winning in 2018, uh, those tax cuts are still not wildly popular. However, for some reason, Republicans have been doing better in recent weeks in public opinion polls. Nonetheless, despite all that money that went to the wealthy and then went to corporations in those tax cuts, the middle class has seen very little of that money. And in fact, uh, we talked last week about uh, we're, we're that wages are not going up at all. Correct. For uh, for the middle class. Usually they go up uh, after an economic recovery, after the recovery that we've seen over the past eight years uh, with Obama and now in the past year and a half or so under Donald Trump. And yet middle class wages are not going up at all. All of those tax cuts, all those all that money saved from the tax cuts is apparently being hung on to the companies, the corporations are holding on to it. They're giving it back to shareholders. They are not giving it back to workers. And uh, late last week, via Donald Pruden at Bradblog.com, uh, in a comment, he pointed us towards this story from Axios late last week. Very few Americans have enjoyed steadily rising pay over the last couple of decades. That, they say, is a shift from prior years in which the working and middle classes enjoyed broad-based wage gains at the as the ec economy expanded. 
Now, however, executives of big U.S. companies suggest that the days of most people getting a pay raise are over and that they also plan to reduce their workforces even further. This was a rare, candid and bracing talk from executives atop corporate America last week at a conference on Thursday at the Dallas Fed. The message, according to Steve Levine, is that Americans should stop waiting for across-the-board pay hikes coinciding with higher corporate profit. Workers will need to shift instead to higher-skilled jobs that command more income. Troy Taylor, CEO of the uh, of the Coca-Cola franchise for Florida, said he is currently adding employees with the idea of later reducing the staff over time, quote, as we invest in automation. The moderator at this panel asked whether there would be broad based wage gains again. Quote from Taylor, it's just not going to happen. As to a general raise, he said, quote, absolutely not in my business. He has absolutely no intention of giving any of these corporations are making uh, record profits. They've got this huge tax cut now from the Republicans, and they are saying out loud they are not going to give this money back to workers in any way, shape or form. John Stevens, chief financial officer at AT AT&T said 20 percent of the company's employees are call center workers. He said he doesn't need that many. He added, I don't need that many guys to install coaxial cables either. So uh, because of the changes that are coming in an automated workforce, AT&T is pushing employees to take new nano degree programs to prepare themselves for other jobs, either at AT AT&T or elsewhere. Are they going to pay Are they going to pay these workers to take those new programs? (laughs) No. No. Yeah. So these folks will get no raises and then they'll just fire them when they need to fire them. All all as those very same corporations are making record profits, getting these huge tax cuts to boot on on top of it. And And they're raising CEO pay instead. I mean, Walmart announced that they're going to raise their CEO's pay to twenty two million dollars a year so that they can lay off ten thousand workers. But, you know, occasionally here and there they gave a thousand dollar bonus to a worker right after the tax cut. Uh, So anyway, that's what y'all are getting from uh, Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Keep that in mind as you go to the polls this year. These are the same folks who pretend to give a damn about the working class. Their actions speak much louder than words. All right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Fordham University's Jed Sugarman, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, Please stop by bradblog.com anytime. Download it for free. You can also reach me yourself. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. I hope you will find, follow, and share us on the Twitters and the Facebooks, where I am simply the Brad Blog. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who help Desi and I, Desi and me, stay on your public airwaves as long as we can by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. You and you alone pay for this program. So thank you. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.